Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Harbin here with you. There's a new report out from the U.N. This is not about climate change. This is about the loss of species, about massive extinction. And what they're saying is that because there are seven billion of us on the planet Earth and because 94 percent of all mammals on the planet right now are livestock for us to eat. There are 8 million plant and animal species on the planet. We are pushing a million of them to the brink of extinction with potentially devastating impacts and implications for the future of civilization. So what do we do with this? At the same time, we're spending over $600 billion a year on military, more than the next six countries combined. You know, how do we deal with this climate change crisis? Your thoughts right after this. Guy McPherson is with us. Guy is the professor emeritus of conservation biology at the University of Arizona. His website, GuyMcPherson.com. He's also the author of Only Love Remains, Dancing at the Edge of Extinction, a new book published by Woodthrush Publications. Guy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to chat with you today. Or welcome to the studio. It's, it's right. cool having you actually physically here. So, you know, we've kind of got this spectrum of opinion on, you know, among people who are actually acknowledging climate change on what it means and what the consequences will be. And Louise and I are going over to see our one-year-old grandson tonight. And I tend to put things in terms of what's going to happen in his lifetime. The most conservative among us are saying that by the time he hits 70 or 80, we're going to see massive changes in the world, you know, if we don't do anything. And, you know, his children or grandchildren are screwed, basically. The midpoint, what seems to be a scientific consensus, although you may dispute that, is that probably it's going to happen when he's in his 30s or 40s. You're suggesting that the crapola is going to hit the fan a whole lot sooner than that, and that in part, and you've got a broad spectrum of arguments which people can find anywhere on the internet or on YouTube, or over at arctic-news.blogspot.com. Well, actually, instead of my trying to characterize what you have to say, <laughs> what have you to say, Guy? <laughs> what do you think my grandson's fate is going to be? What's he going to see in his lifetime? I'm at the tail end of a speaking tour. 
that's been going for about four and a half weeks. And on this entire speaking tour, I've been focusing on the various ways by which we could lose habitat for humans as animals. So we're vertebrates, we're mammals, we're animals. And we generally don't think of ourselves as animals. We think of ourselves as separate from the animal kingdom. But we are at the highest temperature ever experienced by Homo sapiens on Earth already. There are any number of means by which we could rapidly increase the global average temperature and therefore lose habitat for our favorite species. So that's what I've been focusing on rather than on a particular date or a particular year by which we might go extinct. I think that your grandson unfortunately doesn't have much of a run on planet Earth because we are so close to triggering any number of processes that would preclude habitat for humans. As one example, last month, April of 2019, a European group, and I don't recall the name, it's way too long for me to remember, and it's an undated report, but it's a synthetic report put out by a European group of scholars, and they conclude that exceeding one and a half degrees Celsius above the 1750 baseline could lead to extinction of humanity as their worst case scenario. Well, we're already well beyond one and a half degrees Celsius above the 1750 baseline. So it could be that we have triggered the death by a thousand cuts already, or perhaps the guillotine will replace the death by a thousand cuts through, for example, reduction of industrial activity or exacerbation of the self-reinforcing feedback loops that are going on right now or loss of ice in the Arctic Ocean projected by a paper in the annual review of Earth and Planetary Sciences in 2012 to occur in 2016 plus or minus three years and so on. So there's a number of means by which we could lose habitat for our favorite species. I can't imagine we won't cross one of those Rubicons in the relatively near future, meaning within the next few years. Yeah. And I want to be wrong. You know, don't well, I hope you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. I don't know anybody who well, hopes I'm right. Yeah. And that includes yeah. me. Yeah. When I look at this, it seems that there's a series of stages here. And the question is, are we going to hit them in three years or 30 years? But, you know, certainly we're going to hit them within Arthur's lifetime. I think no matter what we do at this point, the first well, is the one that's disruptive to civilization. Right. And that's happening right now. Right. We're, Absolutely. We're, you know, we're seeing Iowa is underwater. I mean, we're seeing thousand year floods. We've had a couple of hundred year floods here in Oregon in the last couple of decades. And, you know, these extreme weather events around the world. Right. This civilization, like all its predecessors, depends upon the ability to grow, store, and distribute grains at scale. Oh, look at the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah, right? What exactly. happened to Samaria? I mean, you know, 7,000 years ago, they engaged in monoculture, intensive agriculture, and they rerouted the Nile. And the consequence of that was that the soil absorbed so much salt that nothing would grow. And, you know, what used to be the cedars of Lebanon and of heavily forested Iraq, which is where right. Samaria was, right. is now desert. Forests greet us and deserts dug our heels. <clears throat> yeah. So number one is destruction of civilization. Number two is mass die-offs of humans. As civilization <laughs> collapses, our access to medications, you know, then you would see the explosion of very virulent diseases that we're just kind of barely holding off right now. And then stage three would be this is even way beyond the Blade Runner world because, you know, technology's gone. We're back to maybe where we were 25,000 years ago when humans had developed some fairly advanced technologies, you know, fire, rope. But we're also the most adaptable of the species, it seems. I mean, you've got humans who were living in the Arctic 
and you talk about an environment that mm -hmm. is not conducive to any kind of life, mm -hmm. um, but they figured out how to build houses out of snow, and they figured out how to pull fish and seal out from underneath the, the ice. So it seems that the thing that's going to lead to the complete extinction of humans is a genuine planet-wide extinction event like we've experienced five times in the past. And the scary one that for me actually is not the Permian, it's the PETM, because that seems to have the more parallels to what we're, is happening to us right now. You want to talk about that and how, how these things might play out? Well, yeah, for example, an ice-free Arctic, which I indicated was projected to occur in 2016, plus or minus three years, would almost certainly cause at least a five and a half degree Celsius global average temperature rise within a matter of months or years, a relatively short period of time. And a paper by Strona and Bradshaw, which came out in scientific reports on November 13th of 2018, indicates that a five or six degree Celsius global average temperature rise That's it. would be sufficient to cause the loss of all life on Earth. Yeah, or the all vast majority life of them. on Earth. Yeah. And that, that, that was actually their conclusion. And then they went on in the same paper, I've never seen this in a peer-reviewed journal article before, they went on in the same paper to write that although we conclude this will cause a loss of all life on Earth, we really can't imagine that happening. And so they were backpedaling even as they were uh, writing their would, own scientific paper. I would say anybody who's publishing a scientific paper that says all life on Earth. I mean, you know, even the That's, Permian, it was 97% of right, all life. Right. You, you know, you got bacteria that survive. You've got, I mean, that's yes. just not scientifically defensible. So their credibility, I would say, is in question. So, so they backed off, and I suspect yeah. that's why they did it, even though their results indicated loss of all life on Earth. And yeah. it's all about the rate of change, sure. here, the rate of environmental change. So is the thing that's driving this, I'm sorry to be moving this along, but we've got just a few minutes here. Is the thing that's driving this, in your opinion, the ice blue ocean event in the Arctic, that is the loss of albedo, no more reflectivity of ice and snow, instead we're absorbing heat? Or is it the release of methane from the permafrost that's melting and possibly the clathrates? It's any and all of the above. There's okay. hydrates or clathrates from beneath the relatively shallow seabed of the Arctic Ocean. There's also terrestrial permafrost yeah. measured recently in Russia as more than 8,500 parts per million parts per million, not parts per billion, which is how methane is generally measured in the right. atmosphere. And so that's an enormous release, at least from a local area. Right, one part Russia. per million is a thousand parts per billion. Right. So we've, we've added three zeros to the right. numbers that we're so, measuring. So this is a roughly 8,500 million parts per billion. That's right. a lot of methanes coming, and that's the terrestrial permafrost. And then we also obviously need to be concerned about the former permafrost under the Arctic Ocean and loss of global dimming, for example, is mm. another severe existential threat and on and on the list goes right you and i've talked about this before in this venue and others and you're of the opinion that basically there's nothing more we can do well because of the rapid changes and because of what's come to be known as the mcpherson paradox named by my friend bill eddy if we keep heating the planet it'll take us beyond the ability to survive if we stop heating the planet by reducing, never mind making it go away, but reducing industrial activity by as little as 35%, that will cause a spike in temperature well beyond the temperature at which humans have appeared on the planet. Because, because we're cutting down on air pollution? Yes, because of global dimming or the right. aerosol masking effect, right. which was supported by a February 8th, 2019 paper 
that just this year in science of all places indicating that we have ignored the aerosol masking effect to great detriment in terms of understanding climate change this paper by Rosenfeld and colleagues. Have you ever everywhere. looked at the research that was done around right after 9-11 when oh, yeah. we had three days with no airplanes? And, and right. that's a minimal amount of reflectivity. I mean, the total airplane activity around the world, it's got to be a fraction of 1% of the surface area of the 30,000-foot atmosphere. Absolutely. That was a contrail effect. It was a little bit different than the aerosol masking right. effect. But still, it indicates how sensitive the climate is on Earth. Right. And this is something that paper after paper shows within the last 10 years. They just keep reeling out and indicating that the planet is far more sensitive than we ever imagined in terms of climate change. So, so there's nothing more to do. Should we just all go out and have a steak dinner and buy an SUV and drive across the country uh, well, in a 6,000-pound diesel? Yeah, that's not my approach. But I suspect some people are using my message to conclude that, yes. As I've been saying for more than 10 years now in public, I think that we need to take right action and not be attached to the outcome. Yeah. So those are both Buddhist A very sound approach to it. Right. And Guy. I'm not Buddhist, but yeah. I still think those are good ideas. I get it. Guy McPherson, the book is Only Love Remains, and uh, the website is Guy McPherson, M-C-P-H-E-R-S-O-N.com. Guy, thanks for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. Great Pleasure. to see you. Hey, Louise and I have been using CBD for a couple of years now for basically pain relief and sleep, but we had been using CBD that also had some pot in it, I suppose, because of, you know, it's legal here in Oregon. Um, but now there's a CBD oil that's legal all over the United States. It's the best quality you can get. And it's derived from hemp, which is, you know, related to marijuana, but it's not marijuana. And so it's, it's legal and it doesn't get you high, and, but it does you know, have these extraordinary properties of uh, pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. It's from New Leaf Naturals, nuleafnaturals.com is the website. Um, CBD oil, non-intoxicating, so it's ideal if you're looking for the health benefits of cannabinoids without you know, getting high. This does not get you high. It's non-toxic and has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory uh, properties. And the, this is the brand that, that Louise and I trust and use, New Leaf, NU Leaf Naturals, New Leaf Naturals, the highest quality concentrated CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States. And as I said, the only ingredient is hemp, so it's totally pure and simple and legal. So go to newleafnaturals.com, N-U-Leafnaturals.com, to save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, to spell T-H-O-M. Go to N-U-Leafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get 30% off. And if you're the first person to tweet me, the newleafnaturals.com website, I'll send you a free bottle of New Leaf Natural CBD oil. Amanda in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Amanda, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I'm just calling about your discussion of climate change and the effects of veganism. Yeah. I've actually been vegan for about two years now, but it was a pretty radical change for myself because I'd never heard of anything like that kind of plant-based diet. And now that I'm on it, I have to say that I do not think about my weight. I do not consider it as something that I have to stress about. The benefits of veganism as just a healthy anti-carcinogen has changed my life. Yeah. Did your I weight used... stabilize or reduce as a consequence it's, of becoming a vegan? Uh, reduced. It's been reduced about 
20 pounds, and I also just rarely think about having to diet. I just don't. I eat primarily plant-based foods and avoid all dairy and meat. You can find quite a bit more protein in vegetables than you can in meat anyhow per calorie. Mm. You know, some of those main ones are broccoli, hemp seeds, almonds. Sure, tofu, et cetera. Things that are relatively boring to hear about, but if we were to start focusing more on local gardening. This is a consequential step toward fixing climate change. And Amanda, Louise and I just two weeks ago said, okay, that's it. I've mentioned before, we were vegetarians up until about 10 years ago, and then we started eating Uh fish once a month. And we have stopped Mm -hmm. eating fish. We have stopped eating any dairy products at all. We are officially hardcore vegans, although I'm still wearing leather shoes, but this too shall pass. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's the third leading cause of climate change gases is industrial agriculture, Amanda. Yeah, I, and the more I read up on facts, 50% of the water use around the world goes to agriculture, livestock, livestock right. feed, along those lines, and Instagram or other social media outlets. If you go in there, it, there's such a thriving community of activists. Yeah, and, and living in Portland, I don't know if you've ever been to Blossoming Lotus. Louise and I were there Friday for lunch. There are a bunch of vegan restaurants in this town, by and by, that are just spectacular. And they're entirely, I mean, literally everything on the menu is vegan. Amanda, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. And great points all. Very well made. Marty in Evergreen Park, Illinois. Hey, Marty, what's up? I just wanted to preface this by saying one of my favorite papers I wrote in college was the positive feedback, the two most dangerous words in the English language. Right. Basically, uh, you know, uh, assuming that the uh, Earth can exports more carbon than it can take in. But that being said, you know, one of the things that concerns me is that, you know, tardigrades can live on the harshest environments on Earth and in outer space and still survive. So my thinking is that if the weather doesn't kill us, superbugs will. And, uh, you know, they're already evolving to be resistant to all the forms of uh uh, you know, antibiotics that we have in place right now, which is part of the reason why I don't eat meat at all, because I don't want to, you know, aid that uh, that process. Um, right. And they haven't for like 20 years. But I'm thinking that, you know, if the weather doesn't kill us, superbugs will. What are your thoughts? You know, I think the superbugs are a challenge. Lori Garrett wrote a book about that kind of a scenario. And I don't think it's going to kill us. I, you know, I think that we're increasingly facing serious challenges. We now have fungi, this strain of candida now that has mutated to the point where it resists all antifungals and it's starting to kill people systemically. We have bacteria that are, in fact, some of the venereal diseases are now multi-drug resistant and tuberculosis as well. There's a form of multi-drug resistant TB. So we may well be back at some point fairly soon back to where we were 150 years ago before antibiotics. Some epidemiologists might even argue that that would be a good thing because we're just continually, our massive use of antibiotics is just continually breeding new strains of superbugs. They're evolving faster than we do because they go through a thousand lifespans in an hour and we go through a thousand lifespans in, in, you know, a hundred thousand years. This is a challenge. It's a very, very real challenge, but humans also do mutate. I mean, the, the Black Plague wiped out a third of us in Europe, at least a third of the people living in Europe. And... Um, some of those people developed an adaptation, a mutation that made them resistant to the Black Plague. Turns out it also made them resistant to HIV. They can't get HIV or they can't get AIDS if they're infected with HIV. So absolute 
human extinction, I think, really is more likely to be associated with a massive climate event that kills off all life or the majority of life on Earth rather than superbugs. But you know, Marty, spot on. It's a big issue. And Lori Garrett and people like her who are talking about there's a number of there's actually another book came out last year that with a similar postulate. We need to be very concerned about this. We need to do something about it. Marty, thanks for the call. Nancy in Chellin, Washington. Am I saying that right? Listening on KBCS. We need to do our part. Like we blame the corporations. Well, we're driving the cars. We're buying the plastics. The new Green Deal, it's there. It shows you how to do it. So let's do it now. Yeah. Now. Yeah. So anyway, Amen. By the way, Nancy, we need to stop kicking ourselves. I mean, this was the Republican response to Al Gore back in the day was, oh, how dare you talk about fossil fuels and, and walking lightly on the earth when you have a 10,000 square foot mansion or bigger or whatever it was. And the simple answer is, and like you said, you know, we all drive cars. Well, yeah, I mean, some of us are sort of making a transition. I bought a plug-in hybrid, so I haven't used gasoline in months. Yeah, or I've used gasoline actually twice in the last yeah. couple of months, but because, you know, right. I went more than 30 miles away from home. But the bottom line is that even the manufacturer of that car consumed enormous amounts of fossil fuels, that as long as our government's policy, and this is where the change needs to happen at the level of policy, as long as the government's right. policy is to subsidize the fossil fuel industry to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year just in the United States, trillions right. of dollars a year worldwide, as long as our government's policy is to subsidize the fossil fuel industry, and then you get states like, you know, Rick Scott down in Florida did, where he actually passed, pushed for, and got laws passed that made it harder to solarize your home if you lived in Florida, you know, because he mm -hmm. was taking money from the local utilities who are privately owned. And as long as that sick kind of politics is going on, and as long as it's being dominated by the fossil fuel industry and utilities mm -hmm. that are using fossil fuels as happened in Florida, we're going to continue having these problems. And we need to stop punishing ourselves. You may need to get on right. an airplane to go to Washington, D.C. That's just the only way you're going to get right. there. And it's right. actually a well, more efficient more <laughs> Right. And, it's a, and, and you'll burn a hell of a lot less fossil fuel than if you drove mm -hmm. across the country. And, you know, right. that's it, it's not about what we are doing. This is what the Republicans mm -hmm. want to talk about. They want to blame the right. victims. They want to blame the consumers. But right. the fact of the matter is that the reason that we're driving gasoline-powered cars now, when other countries, Norway now, doesn't even allow the sale of gasoline-powered cars in their country anymore, as of this moment. You can't sell a gasoline-powered car in Norway. You know, and why? Because they've decided that's it. Enough already. But the reason that we're still buying gasoline-powered cars in the United States is because of policy, government policy that drives these decisions. And we can change that because electric cars are fully competitive. Solar and wind power are fully competitive with any kind of fossil fuel. In fact, in most parts of the country, they're cheaper than fossil fuels. And the only thing that's holding it back is political will. And that's why we need to be showing up. And that's why it's a great thing that you're going to D.C., Nancy. Right. But why don't we stop driving one day a month? You know, I'm all in favor of doing everything I can, right? I, you know, we we take carry a bag to this to the grocery store. Right, you know, exactly. I bought a high plug-in hybrid, so I'm because I didn't want to be burning any more fossil fuels. You know, we right. we try to you know heat the house and all. We, you know, we all do what we can, but let's not get into this god awful thing of kicking ourselves when we're not perfect and making perfection the enemy of the good, and just basically going along with the Republican talking points. Howard in Los Angeles, listening to KPFK. Hey, Howard, what's on your mind today? Um, Tom, I think the way we deal with it is by having our kids stay out of school and demonstrate to raise awareness about the climate crisis. I believe it was Friday was the first time I ever saw 
coverage on mainstream media mm-hmm. that American students across the country, elementary school kids is what I saw, actually stayed out of school on Friday. I think they call it Fridays for the Future. Yeah, this is Greta um, Thunberg's, the Swedish young lady who, yeah. she started this all by herself, all alone, yeah. on the street with a little sign, and now it has become a worldwide movement. Yeah, and it's been big in Europe, apparently, but it's the first time I really saw evidence of it here. And yeah. uh, it's brought a mainstream media coverage on MSNBC, actually. Yeah. And I think what could be more brilliant, if kids nationwide started skipping school, because basically they feel as though there's no point in going to school if the future is going to be so grim, right. that all this supposed opportunity that they're going to have is being choked off. Um, and the idea of staying home, uh, what, what better way to raise the awareness of their parents who are asleep? Uh, the, only, I mean, the only thing you listen to as a parent is your kids, I mean, more than anything else. So I just, I support that tremendously. I think kids yeah. should start doing that. I do too. You know, Howard, we have an educational system, or at least the public education system, where schools are paid... It varies from state to state, but typically the students have to show up for a certain number of days each year or the school doesn't right. get paid for that student. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's a way around this, because if, you know, that being the case, you're going to have a lot of a lot of schools that are saying, you know, if you don't show up on Fridays for more than, say, three Fridays in a row or whatever the number is that's going to endanger the school's funding uh, stream, that the school will start kicking kids out or start punishing them in substantial ways or flunking them or whatever. And um, I don't, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's not happening in Europe. And so I'm wondering if there's a way that schools can get around this. Can schools say, okay, kids, come to school for the first hour and then go sit on the street for five hours and then come back for the last hour so we can say that you were here for the day? Or is there, you know, I, you know, I don't know the answer to this question. Maybe some, maybe a no, teacher. may well. That may well be the way, because I can recall in my daughter's uh, case, there were, there were days when she had like a medical issue or something, needed to go to the doctor. And quite often, I think people do bring their kids to school in the morning, so they get checked in for attendance. And then if you need to, you take part of the day off to do what you need to do. And that would make some sort of sense that way. But I, even ignoring that, and staying home and, and causing that kind of an issue uh, is, again, I mean, we have to disrupt. That, and that will disrupt a lot of people when they start feeling like the, uh, the school systems are going to be hurt by the fact of uh, kids staying out for this cause. We yeah. need to do something for this cause. Yeah, it, it, it will. The, the rules will vary from state to state, Howard. And that, that's you know, part of the problem. But I, I agree with you, and I, I'm very supportive of uh, Greta and all the young people who are doing exactly what she is is doing and is proposing, although I think she's doing it five days a week. But Fridays for the future, big deal. Howard, thank you for the call. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. And how do we deal with this climate crisis? Our children are staying out of schools on Fridays. That's a powerful statement. What else do we do? Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I tell you, I'm really afraid about methane gas. And methane gas... Let me get outside. Methane gas is is the component in the air that keeps oxygen from getting above 24.6%. Uh, no, not so true. We don't, 
Methane doesn't yeah. compete with oxygen for, for space it, in the atmosphere. Our atmosphere is about in the air. No, our atmosphere is about twenty percent oxygen and it's like point zero 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 uh, one percent okay. methane. The the uh, methane is a powerful greenhouse gas. That's where methane is dangerous to us. It's not dangerous to us in that it is displacing oxygen. Oxygen has to be above twenty two point four percent. Our mammals will not be able to live. Cool. And if oxygen goes above twenty four point six percent, you cannot put out a land fire. Okay. Okay. But, but methane's and, not influencing either one of those variables. No, at methane. I learned this when I was in college, and I, I, I have the book on back order right now. Methane actually consumes oxygen in the air, according to, I forget his, his first name was Joseph, and I don't remember his last name, yeah. but there's a book, The Gaia Theory, and that explains it too. Well, methane breaks get, down, when, when methane is, is um, oxidized, essentially, in the atmosphere, or when it breaks down in the atmosphere, it breaks down into carbon dioxide and water vapor. Methane is, I think it's CH4, right? One carbon, four hydrogens. So yeah, as it's being oxidized, it would convert free oxygen, or actually oxygen ions, it would convert that into water vapor. So it would consume oxygen, yeah. But again, the methane is point, you know, zero, zero, zero something. The danger of methane is that it is a radically more effective greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. That's the danger of methane. What's the first thing you do when you get into a new car? You adjust the seat, right? Most cars only allow you to move the seat front or back, but if it's a luxury car, you can adjust your lower back or lumbar support. Well, most of us spend more time in our office chairs than we do in our cars. And how many adjustments can you make to your office chair? If it's any fewer than 10 customized ergonomic adjustments, then you do not have an X chair. I can adjust my X chair to fit my body perfectly, and thanks to the X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support, or DVL, my back gets the perfect level of support. DVL is the key key to ideal posture, comfort, and productivity, and only the X-Chair has it. My X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com, that's xchairtom.com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchairtom.com, use the code XWheels, and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels to go with your chair. That's xchairtom.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from Monica L. Smith's book, Cities, the First 6,000 Years. This is from Chapter 1, titled, Why Cities? As an archaeologist, my favorite place in Rome is not the Colosseum or the Forum. It's the ancient trash dump of Monte Testacio. Right in the middle of the city, it's a giant mound of broken pottery where the ancient Romans threw away the containers used to ship wine and olive oil all over the Mediterranean. Each of those vessels was about half the height of a person and made of coarse clay that would have roughed up a stevedore's hands. Their odd shape of two handles and a pointy base made them good for packing into a ship's hold or standing upright on a sandy shoreline, but very inconvenient for anything else. After a cargo of them arrived at its destination on the hustling shores of the Tiber, at the very heart of the Roman world, a few were reused and a few were recycled. Over the centuries, the pile of discards grew, with the result that one of the famous hills of Rome is actually not a hill at all, but of human construction, a landfill, essentially. Today, Monte Testacio is topped by trendy nightclubs, 
and has been endlessly mined for construction. But there are still the remains of 25 million ancient containers poking up from the vegetation of the hillside. Now consider a very different metropolis. My favorite part of Tokyo, the backside of the Shukiji fish market, that part that tourists don't visit. Shukiji is enormous, and the passageways are crowded with plastic buckets and barrels, teeming with every kind of creature that you can imagine from the briny deep. Crabs attempt to crawl their way out of baskets. Little fish are piled up in ice buckets, and great slabs of tuna glisten under the Klieg lights. The market is open to everyone, with chefs and restaurant owners jostling with homemakers for a clearer view of the day's catch. It's a world without friendly chit-chat, punctuated by the dangerous darting movements of souped-up forklifts that dodge their way in and out of the buildings and heap up their discards out back. Behind the market is an enormous dump of plastic foam shipping boxes used to transport the globally sourced tuna, squid, and shrimp from each morning's auctions. The pile of containers is taller than a two-story building and so large that it is continually cleared by bulldozer. Some of the cartons are trampled and broken in the process with bits and pieces that spill further into the passageway. In between the endless runs of machinery, merchants and their helpers come to pick through the heaps of box fragments, sorting through the pile to find ones that aren't too broken. They carry them off to repack with fish or whatever else they're selling. Ancient Rome and modern Tokyo are literally a world apart, but if we stand back and look at them as cities, they have identical characteristics. In addition to markets and trash, there are multi-story buildings, long streets, sewer pipes, water mains, public squares, and a downtown zone of financial institutions and government offices. There are a thousand varieties of sounds and smells competing with the weather and daylight that frame the skyline in the built environment. There are crowds of people, rich, poor, young, old, female, gay, straight, trans, able, disabled, employed, students, jobless, residents, and visitors. Production and consumption opportunities are scaled up in cities to provide not only more things, but also more things per person, a completely ironic abundance given that urban residences tend to be much smaller than their rural counterparts. In the midst of so much abundance, the only solution is to cycle through possessions faster, turning everything into trash. It's the act of discard that provides the most telling evidence of urban activity, whether it's a broken potsherd from 2,000 years ago or a fragment of a plastic crate that was shattered this morning. Once you start to look for the concentrated detrius of your own urban life, it's everywhere. In the trash cans that bear the proud logo of the downtown business improvement district, in the dumpster parked outside a building that signals the renovation taking place inside, in the garbage truck that obstructs your commute, in the legions of sanitation workers employed to sweep the streets and subways and haul out the accumulations of discards. Trash has a familiar rhythm and concentration. Holidays bring a hangover of extra full trash bins. Parades and festivals and summer weekends in the park are witnessed through their aftermath of overflowing trash containers. Whether directly or by proxy, an urban obsession with trash is everywhere, and once you start to look, you won't be able to stop seeing it. Congratulations. You're an archaeologist. Move your gaze upward or to the side, you might notice it's not just trash that silently tells the story of urban life. Your own metropolis, even if it's new, has many traces that reveal its history before you moved through its streets. Maybe it's a bolt hole in the sidewalk where a telephone booth used to stand, or an out-of-use railroad track now embedded in the asphalt of the city street. Maybe it's a building that has been updated once or twice, resulting in the pastiche of a Victorian facade with mirrored glass windows or a modernist concrete structure fronted by flowers and cheerful painted windowsills. 
And maybe it's a newly cut ditch in the street where you can see the layered pavements of prior years right up to the present. Buildings and streets and parks serve as a living map of variable time, a collection of structures that all exist simultaneously, whether they were constructed a millennium ago, in your grandparents' time, or just last week. Your growing archaeological insights serve you well when looking not only at modern cities, but also at the ancient cities that are found by the hundreds on nearly every continent. Such famous ones such as Rome, to not-so-famous ones with romantic names like Tikal, Telbrock, and Expion. The book Cities, The First 6,000 Years by Monica L. Smith. Paul Gunter is on the line with us. Paul is the director of the Reactor Oversight Project over at beyondnuclear.org, website beyondnuclear.org, and the Twitter handle, of course, Beyond Nuclear as well. And uh, Paul, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked. Thank you very much, Tom. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, back at you. So the, uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC, apparently has not been taking climate change into consideration when it comes to licensing, regulating, whatever, nuclear power plants. And we're starting to see, because the atmosphere has 6% more moisture in it right now, because it's a degree warmer than it was just a few decades ago, the storms are dropping a whole hell of a lot more water right now. And we're seeing flooding across parts of the United States that have literally never flooded and worse flooding in areas that are prone to flooding. And in many of those cases, you've got a nuclear power plant in the path. A, did I accurately describe that? And B, why is that a problem? Well, Tom, you know, the existing reactor fleet here in the United States, we've got 35 reactors that sit below major dams. We've got a whole host of nuclear reactors on the East Coast. We're about to be nuclear-free on the West Coast, but we still have two reactors at Diablo Canyon. But these are 1960s, 1970s vintage designs, and when they were constructed, they were using antiquated meteorological data. They were using data regarding how we thought of earthquakes 40 years ago. Following Fukushima, suddenly there was a pressure on the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission, actually globally, but the U.S. nuclear industry realized that the plants weren't built to standards that presented as real-world events. Uh, you know, Fukushima, when it was built back in the 1960s, they had a design that was built for a potential tsunami of uh, just a little over 10 feet. That was their probabilistic assessment of what they needed to make Fukushima safe for. They were, of course, hit by a 48-foot tsunami on March 11, 2011. And uh, so that's what, um, you know, the difference between a design basis event and a beyond design basis. But what was demonstrated was something well over, but very real, what they built that plan at. And that raised alarms at the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission because our safety standards are antiquated. It set about in motion a rulemaking process that raised issues not only for earthquakes, but flooding, a whole host of other issues. 
the staff for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission basically said, we need to order U.S. nuclear power stations to upgrade. And they went through a rulemaking process for seven years, essentially. And by 2016, the NRC staff said, we're going to order you to upgrade from the old flood and earthquake standard to a more realistic standard that we feel needs to be met now in a post-Fukushima world. And they published a draft final rule after going through a whole set of public comments that the industry commented on. We commented. The rule then went before the commission after the public comment period was closed. And what happened was the commission voted not to require those upgrades, but to let the industry essentially go back to the old antiquated standard and meet any upgrade on their own self-assessment and make it voluntary. And it went from what the staff was projecting at about $1.7 million per reactor site to meet the cost of compliance with that draft rule. Under the new commission or rule that was adopted on a 3-2 vote with following party lines with three Republicans against one Democrat and one independent, it reduced the cost to $110,000 per site. So we dropped the cost of safety upgrades that came out of the Fukushima accident to one-tenth what the staff said was needed. So again, once again, financial margins have superseded safety margins. And based on protecting the U.S. nuclear industry's costs and making us incredibly vulnerable now, particularly with rising sea levels, these are going to present unprecedented events. And the industry is not prepared for that. So how many reactors in the United States do we have in total? And how many of those, as a consequence of these decisions and the changing nature of our climate, how many of those have the potential to spectacularly melt down the way Fukushima did? Well, there are currently 98 nuclear uh, power stations operating in the United States. We're about to go to 97 in June of uh, 2019 with the closure of one of those coastal reactors in Massachusetts, the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station, which is practically identical to Fukushima Daiichi. These are the General Electric Mark I boiling water reactors. We've got 21 of those GE Mark I's operating in the United States now that are basically vulnerable to the same kinds of explosions and meltdowns that we saw at Fukushima Daiichi because of a bad design. The containment structure, as we've talked about many times on your program, is substandard. We recognized that in 1972, that if these reactors, uh, these GE Mark I's, are faced with a severe accident, volumetrically, they're too small to contain the tremendous heat pressure, explosive, non-condensable gas, and then behind that, just this huge amount of radiation that would be released in that initial explosion. 
But again, rather than raise the safety bars around this particular design, we've consistently seen the industry enter into the commission decision-making through a back door that is essentially in violation of the Administrative Procedures Act, a federal law that guarantees that the public, independent experts have a a say and a place in the decision-making. Is this something unique to the Trump administration, or has this been going on for a long time? This has been going on. You know, originally it was the Atomic Energy Commission that got caught promoting nuclear power over its regulatory role. When the Nuclear Regulatory Commission took over, we basically saw just a change in window dressing. But it's about to get worse, Tom, because in June, we're going to have four of the five seats will be Trump-appointed commissioners. So right now we got three. We got Stephen Burns is going to resign June 30th, and Trump will make his nomination, and we'll have a four-to-one Trumpster commission. Oh, my God. Okay, Paul Gunter, Beyond Nuclear is the website. You can read all about it over there, the director of the Reactor Oversight Project of Beyond Nuclear. Paul, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Yes, no nukes, Tom. Amen. No nukes. And keep up the good work. It's uh, you're doing You're doing God's work there, Paul. Thank you. Bob in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today? You want to talk about nuclear power? Yeah, hey, really valued Paul and his work. Yeah, me too. With him, yes. This goes way, way back. Ivan Selin, Nuclear Regulatory Commission Chairman, mm-hmm. early 90s. He was telling us we didn't understand the value of nuclear power. We need to go back to high school and look at energy, blah, blah. I mean, this goes way back, this kind of hypocrisy. These people need to be held personally accountable. This is a long history of convoluted lies on the part of the government, on the part of the nuclear industry, and people who just think, you know, it doesn't matter if we create this waste. I get it. And leave behind little pockets of the planet that are uninhabitable. Yeah, these are poisons that will last millions and millions of years. Bob, thank you. Sharice in Polsbo, Washington. Hey, Sharice, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I appreciate the conversations about nuclear power, but I'm kind of frustrated that nobody ever talks about the cost in fossil fuels and things like that to mine the uranium, the big rigs and the huge dump trucks and bringing it over here from Australia and turning it into fuel rods and all that kind of thing. It's like the natural gas with all the fracking and all the costs of that that nobody, you know. On this show a couple of years ago, Helen Caldicott said that a nuclear power plant. My hero. Yeah, mine too. And she said that a nuclear power plant doesn't produce its first kilowatt of carbon-free energy until the 17th or 18th year of its life. That's how carbon intensive all the processes are that are involved in building a nuclear power plant and mining the uranium and refining the uranium and transporting the uranium. And, and then afterwards, you know, dealing with the, the waste, you know, the, the nuclear waste, which doesn't just sit in a pool. You have to have electric pumps continuously recirculating the water in that pool. And they have to be f- provided by a grid that's outside the nuclear power plant, because if the plant goes down, you don't want the pool to blow up. And, yeah, which and, is usually cold. Right. It's usually cold doing that. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, or you know whatever the local power source is, but in the United States, the majority of that is coal or oil, or in some cases, natural gas. Now, right. yeah, I totally agree with you, Sharice. Excellent point, and very well said. Thank you very much. Our book today is Midnight in Chernobyl: The Untold Story of the World's Greatest Nuclear Disaster by Adam Higginbotham. This is from the prologue. Saturday, April 26, 1986, 4.16 p.m., Chernobyl Atomic Energy Station, Ukraine. Senior Lieutenant Alexander Logachev loved radiation the way other men love their wives. Tall and good-looking, 26 years old, with close-cropped dark hair and ice-blue eyes, Logachev had joined the Soviet Army when he was still a boy. They had trained him well. The instructors from the military academy outside Moscow taught him with lethal poisons and unshielded radiation. He traveled to the testing grounds of Semipalatinsk in Kazakhstan and to the desolate East Urals Trace, where the fallout from a clandestine radioactive accident still poisoned the landscape. Eventually, Logachev's training took him even to the remote and forbidden islands of Novaya Zemlya, high in the Arctic Circle, and ground zero for the detonation of the terrible Tsar Bomba, the largest thermonuclear device in history. Now, as the lead radiation reconnaissance officer of the 427th Red Banner Mechanized Regiment of the Kiev District Civil Defense Force, Logoshev knew how to protect himself and his three-man crew from nerve agents, biological weapons, gamma rays, and hot particles by doing their work just as the textbooks dictated, by trusting his dosimetry equipment, and when necessary, reaching for the nuclear, bacterial, and chemical warfare medical kits stored in the cockpit of their armored car. But he also believed that the best protection was psychological. These men who allowed themselves to fear radiation were most at risk. But those who came to love and appreciate its spectral presence, to understand its caprices, could endure even the most intense gamma bombardment and emerge as healthy as before. As he sped through the suburbs of Kiev that morning at the head of a column of more than 30 vehicles summoned to an emergency at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, Logoshev had every reason to feel confident. The spring air blowing through the hatches of his armored scout car carried the smell of the trees and the freshly cut grass. His men gathered on the parade ground just the night before for their monthly inspection were drilled and ready. At his feet, a battery of radiological detection instruments, including a newly installed electronic device twice as sensitive as the old model, murmured softly, revealing nothing unusual in the atmosphere around them. But as they finally approached the plant later that morning, it became clear that something extraordinary had happened. The alarm on the radiation dosimeter first sounded as they passed the concrete signpost marking the perimeter of the power station grounds, and the lieutenant gave orders to stop the vehicle and log their findings. 51 Rochins per hour. If they waited here just 60 minutes, they would all absorb the maximum dose of radiation permitted Soviet troops during wartime. They drove on following the line of high voltage transmission towers that marched toward the horizon in the direction of the power plant. Their readings climbed still further before falling again. Then as the armored car rumbled along the concrete bank of the station's cooling canal, the outline of the fourth unit of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant finally became visible and Logoshev and his crew gazed at it in silence. The roof of the 20-story building had been torn open, its other upper levels blackened and collapsed into heaps of rubble. They could see shattered panels of ferro-concrete, tumbled blocks of graphite, and here and there the glittering metal casings of fuel assemblies from the core of a nuclear reactor. A cloud of steam drifted from the wreckage into the sunlit sky. 
Yet they had orders to conduct a full reconnaissance of the plant. Their armored car crawled counterclockwise around the complex at 10 kilometers an hour. Sergeant Vlaskin called out the radiation readings from the new instruments, and Logoshev scribbled them down on a map, hand-drawn on a sheet of parchment paper in ballpoint pen and colored marker. One roachin per hour, then two, then three. They turned left, and the figures began to rise quickly. Ten, thirty, fifty, a hundred. Two hundred fifty roachins an hour, the sergeant shouted, his eyes widening. Comrade Lieutenant, he began, and pointed at the radiometer. Logoshev looked down at the digital readout and felt his scalp prickle with terror. 2,080 rochins an hour, an impossible number. Logoshev struggled to remain calm and remember the textbook, to conquer his fear. But his training failed him, and the lieutenant heard himself screaming in panic at the driver, petrified that the vehicle would stall. Why are you going this way, you son of a bee? Are you out of your effing mind? If this thing dies, we'll all be corpses in 15 minutes. Part 1, Chapter 1, The Soviet Prometheus At the slow beat of approaching rotor blades, black birds rose into the sky, scattering over the frozen meadows and the pearly knots of creeks and ponds, lacing the Pripyat River Basin. Far below, standing knee-deep in snow, his breath lingering in heavy clouds, Viktor Brukhanov awaited the arrival of the nomenklatura from Moscow. When the helicopter touched down, the delegation of ministers and Communist Party officials trudged together over the icy field. The savage cold gnawed at their heavy woolen coats and nipped beneath their tall fur hats. The head of the Ministry of Energy and Electrification of the USSR and senior party bosses from the Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine joined Brukhanov at the spot where their audacious new project was to begin. Just 34 years old, clever and ambitious, a dedicated party man, Brukhanov had come to western Ukraine with orders to begin building what would become the greatest nuclear power station on Earth. Midnight in Chernobyl. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority, and frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one Triple eight own gold. That's one eight 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 O W N G O L D. One triple eight own gold. Hi, this is Tom Hartman. We just put up a new rant uh, for our show's supporters about veganism, about the body having an internal set point. And this whole idea of a get ready for winter response, sort of like squirrels have, you know, in the fall, they know to start adding to their body fat and bulking up their weight because winter's coming and there's going to be a lot less food available. We've developed a similar mechanism through the millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution, particularly as we've traveled, you know, across Africa and other continents where 
Uh, food may be scarce parts of the year from drought or from you know, periodic dry spells or rainy spells or winter and things like that. It's a fascinating concept that all ties back in. You can check it out. Thanks again for supporting our program. More information is available at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. That's patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Welcome back. Uh, just a quick heads up, by the way, I've, I've mentioned several times in the last week or so that uh, Marianne Williamson just needed about 3,000 people uh, to donate to her campaign to hit that 65,000 threshold that gets her on the debate stage. She has met that threshold. Now Jay Inslee is another really great candidate. He's made basically the focus of his candidacy climate change, and he's about 15,000 donors short. So, you know, even two bucks sent his way will help a lot. So let's check in uh, with uh, Talk Media News here and find what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and loving what you do. Ellen Ratner's new book on the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, Luke Vargas, uh, live from New York today. He does a two-minute podcast as well. Tariffs on China today. Uh, what's conventional wisdom on how this is going to play out and what's your take on it? Well, I think the conventional wisdom is that the biggest category of sort of, uh, well, so here, here's, what, uh, here's what retailers have done thus far. You know, the first few rounds of tariffs, including the ones that are currently in effect, were supposed to be felt by businesses which weren't selling consumer products. The idea being if you're making something with rolled aluminum, you could stockpile that if you saw a tariff coming down the line. Maybe it would be a year or two of pain, but you can try to insulate consumers from those tariffs. Right. The new batch of tariffs, a company has tried to shield consumers to date, they're not going to be able to do that any longer. I mean, this is a two-and-a-half-fold increase here. Uh, the New York Times has a really, really useful uh, resource that sort of goes category by category and shows how this is going to impact consumers. And it it's, looks like we should be expecting furniture, things made with various fabrics, as well as computers to be the biggest hit. Um, that, you know, about half of the products, about so that's $100 billion worth of the products covered uh, in these latest tariffs are things that China basically produces all of the world's supplies. So there's not even a choice in many of these categories for consumers to look elsewhere for a competitive product. And again, it just sort of underscores the seeming absurdity of Trump's conclusion yeah. about these so that, uh, money just going into the U.S. coffers, which it isn't. The flip side of that is how did China end up the sole source uh, distributor for most of those things? China had tariffs. In fact, they still have the equivalent of tariffs. They protected their domestic market and they protected their international markets. Japan does it. Taiwan does it. South Korea does it. All the European countries do it. Um, they don't call them tariffs now. Mostly it's reversible VAT taxes, but right. they're functionally the same thing. They're about a 30% imposition on imported goods. You consider like Germany, for example, 17% discount on exported German goods to do away with the VAT tax, 17% tax on imported goods for the VAT tax. That's, uh, you know, 7 14, that's 34% right there. I think that Trump is doing this the wrong way, but I think that this is going to be a huge winner for him in 2020 because working people all across America know that protectionist trade policies built this country and dismantling those protectionist trade policies during the Clinton administration began under Reagan, but it really went on steroids with Clinton, wiped out organized labor, wiped out manufacturing in this country. The thing to watch is going to be really whether or not, as we've seen with past deals, that this is 
President Trump's last move, his last threat right before shaking hands with the Chinese and agreeing to something. I mean, we have seen even today trade negotiators saying they had a successful last session in Washington, D.C. It doesn't appear like things broke apart. Um, And so if the momentum continues and and we may only be days away from a resolution, I guess that's people's hope. But again, if if, particularly if you're in, in the farming community, I think, and you have been told specifically by the Department of Agriculture, there is no more you know, billions of dollars of sort of trade remedies coming your way to offset the cost of these tariffs. Yeah, those, those people have, are, those those people are screwed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I get it. And this is what Trump does. You know, he creates a crisis and then he solves the crisis, which was unnecessary in the first place. And then he declares himself the winner because he solved the crisis. It's bizarre. I noticed that Rand says it's not interested in holding negotiations with the U.S. over a replacement nuclear deal. I mean, Trump would love, I think, to have a replacement deal, don't you? He would love it, but he's, A, asking too much. I mean, to ask Iran to stop supporting various groups all over the Middle East would require a reset of their entire country's grand strategy, which is something that no country is ever willing to negotiate. I think we're getting a better and better sign, particularly coming from European capitals this week, that Iran wants to keep negotiating. It is threatening to do some enrichment-related activity that would sort of violate the nuclear agreement on the fringes, but not really undermine it. I think they're playing a game that goes way past 2020, saying, look, if we can make some moves here, if we can maybe get something from the U.S. without giving up too much. But I do not anticipate, like you saw with North Korea, there being much of a high likelihood Trump can drive Iran to the negotiating yeah. table. Oh. They'd just rather, rather wait this out and hope, hope he doesn't get reelected. I agree. And Mexico turned down U.S. drug money, essentially money to stop the drug trade. Do you think that AMLO is thinking of uh, decriminalizing drugs or something like that? Yeah, he just released a five-year plan for the country yesterday, which does call for the decriminalization of all drugs. There's a lot of steps that would need to happen before that occurs, but I think that's a welcome shift. Just like both Bolivia and Portugal have done this. Exactly. Yeah. Fascinating. Luke Vargas with Talk Media News, uh, talkmedianews.com, and of course, Luke's uh, podcast. You can find them uh, wherever fine podcasts are available. Thanks, Luke. Thank you. Great talking with you. Thank you for being with us. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It wasn't organized that way. It's never worked as a spectator sport. No democracy in history has ever functioned if its people don't get involved. So please, get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.